and open to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, for the reading of God's Word. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke the Word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any among, anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levi of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray this morning. Father God, meet with us this morning. Minister to our hearts as we worship you. Minister to our hearts this morning as we receive your word. Father, we need your encouragement. We need to be challenged by you this morning. And we need to be brought into your presence. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 4. I'd like to welcome everyone that's here this morning. If you're here in person or if you're on video this morning or live streaming, however we're doing that now. I think it actually is live streaming. I'm sharing the word this morning. Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 31 and go to verse 37. I've got a question to ask this morning. How many of you have watched any of the presidential debates? So, show of hands. Well, a lot of you. That's good. So how many of you have seen videos, ads, Facebook posts, tweets, or other news broadcasts about the upcoming elections? Anybody seen that? Yeah. Unless you've totally disconnected from electronical devices or you're living in the wilderness somewhere, you, I'm sure you've not escaped it. And I'm also sure that you've not escaped the fact that we are a country that is deeply divided over social, moral, and economic issues. You know, our country's always been a melting pot of different religions, social and cultural ideals. And for many years, the ideals of self-rule, of personal responsibility, and ultimate freedom, maximum freedom, had been part of our country. And our founding fathers, they believed strongly in those ideals. And yet even today, those ideals are being rejected and being debated. You know, it's, it's a sad thing when you see now that we can't even have civil debate, it seems, anymore over the differences we have. When people begin to disagree with each other, instead of sitting down and having a debate and a respectful conversation, they begin to attack each other. They begin to call each other names. They begin attacking the character of the other person to try to totally discredit them. You know, I fear for our nation. If we cannot have legitimate debate over the issues at hand, how are we going to have any kind of reconciliation? You know, Jesus said in Matthew twelve twenty five, every kingdom divided against itself will be brought to desolation. And every city or house that is divided against itself will not stand. 
You know, I think the division that's occurring in our country, I don't think it's by accident. I think it's well planned. I think it's well orchestrated. And I think ultimately it comes from the evil one. He's trying to destroy our country. And so I want to call this morning, even though this is not part of this message per se, I want to call on all believers to pray. Pray for our country. Pray for the eyes of people to be opened. Pray for people to turn back to God. He is really the source of all truth and the foundation of government. Apart from Him, we really don't have a foundation. You know, sometimes people will say, well, the foundation of the government lies in the ideals and the will of the people. And to a certain extent, that is true. But if you end up with a nation that is totally corrupt, as Germany became, they got to the point to where the ideals of the people were it was okay to kill people that were different from you. So unless it's based in the foundation of God's word, the Ten Commandments, the Judeo-Christian ethic, we really don't have a foundation anymore. So the question comes, where does all this division, distrust, competition, and hatred come from one another when it comes to the human race? Well, I think God's word provides a clear answer, the best answer to this question. And the answer is found in the book of beginnings, or Genesis as we call it today. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God by listening to the lies of Satan and then doing what he told them not to do. God told them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, For in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. It's interesting when you look at this in the Hebrew, and this is a little for your Bible nerds, this is probably the only Hebrew I talk about this morning, it is an infinitive absolute when he says you shall die. And really the best translation I think of it is dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. Well, what does that mean when it says dying you shall die? Well, of course we certainly know it means physical death because every man dies, every person dies. But it means so much more than that. It also means spiritual death or separation from God. In Genesis 3.8, it says that when they heard, after they ate the fruit, when they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that they hid themselves from the presence of Lord, the Lord God. Before that time, they had enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with God. God would come down and actually walk in the presence of of Adam and Eve, and talk to them. He goes back to that old hymn, He walks with me and He talks with me. And He tells me I'm His own. But something happened after sin. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10, Adam says, He heard God's voice and was afraid. That's perhaps the first time that mankind ever experienced fear. And what did he fear? He didn't fear what he should have feared, but he was fearing God now. However, sin does not only separate mankind from our loving God, it also drove a wedge of fear, jealousy, distrust, and hate between all mankind. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12, Adam told God his disobedience was because of the woman that God had given him. Sure didn't take long for him to throw her under the bus. Gentlemen, you ever done that? Maybe. And then we get one more chapter over. And we find the first murder. Cain killed his brother Abel because of jealousy. 
In chapter 4, verse 9, God asked Cain, where is your brother? You know what his response was? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. We are our brother's keeper. But sin has separated us, first and foremost, from God. But you know what? We who are believers, we believe that Christ can reconcile us back to God. Praise be to God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this, But God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we teach and that's what we believe. In fact, the central theme of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 to the book of Revelation is the reconciliation and redemption of mankind. God seeking to bring us back into a relationship with Him. Not forcing us to, but doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then wooing us to Him. To choose Him. Like a bride chooses her groom. And Christ is our groom and we are His bride. And He does everything possible to bring us to Him. But He never forces us. God wants people to choose to love him. But you know what? This reconciliation not only occurs between us and God, it also occurs between man and man. God desired not only to reconcile us with him, but that this sin that separates us from him and separates us from each other would bring us back into love with each other. I love Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Wow. That's what God desires. He goes on to say, continuing steadfast in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. God wants us not only to love him and be reconciled to him, God wants us to love other people. Recently, I've been teaching through the book of Acts on Sunday nights. As I worked my way through the first five chapters of the book, something really struck me profoundly. In a deep and new way. And that's how much God desires for us to love and serve each other. The way Jesus loved and served us. This passage we're going to be examining this morning occurs after a great miracle. In in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up into the temple. And they find a lame man. He's laying by the gate called Beautiful. And this is a tremendous picture in the Bible. And this man, the Bible tells us, has been lame from birth. And he's over 40 years old. Every day people bring him up to lay him at the temple gate, the gate called Beautiful. I can see all the people walking by him daily, trying not to see him, or maybe giving him something to take care of him. 
And Peter and John walk up and they say, we don't have any money, but we're going to give you something else. We're going to give you Jesus. And the man gets up whole and begins leaping and praising God. It takes us back to the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 5. Jesus did the same thing pretty much at the pool of Bethesda when he heals the lame man who'd been there for all those years. And it just sets off a firestorm in the book of Acts. And we see Peter preaching two tremendous messages. Peter all of a sudden becomes this tremendous preacher and theologian. That's what happens when you get the Holy Spirit. Now, he did study the Bible, and he was with Jesus, so he knew the Scriptures. But now he knew what the Scriptures meant, and he knew how to apply them. These messages of Peter in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and 4 are just they're theological masterpieces. You've got to go back and really look at them to see how he takes the Old Testament Scriptures and just makes them come alive. It's, it's tremendous. So in Acts chapter 3, it's to the people in the temple at large. And in Acts chapter 4, he comes back with this even tremendous message, and it's to all the leaders of Israel. Of course, their response was pretty much the same thing when Jesus healed the man in John chapter 5. It made them jealous, and they didn't want to listen to it. So they tried to get rid of the disciples. They told them, all right, we're not going to do anything to you really bad, but you've got to quit talking about Jesus. Just quit preaching and teaching about Jesus. They didn't. Peter, in his boldness, said, no, we, we can't do that. We've got to keep teaching and preaching about Jesus. So when we look at this passage this morning, let's just read it over, read over it again. And we're going to start in verse 31. And it says, and when they had prayed, and this is right after that, after the, uh, just to throw the context there a little bit better, right after the, the religious leader said, okay, don't talk anymore about Jesus and get out of here. So they go back and they tell the other disciples and, and the followers of Christ what has happened. And so they had this great, this great prayer where they pour out to God. And it says in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say of any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor, were there, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses, and the better translation here were, were possessing lands and houses, were selling them. And were bringing the proceeds of that which were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they were distributing to anyone who has need. Tremendous passage this morning of unity and of power in the early church. Now, when we get into the scriptures, we find in the book of Acts that this unity was common. This great unity among believers. And when we get into the other passages of scripture, we find that Unity is highly valued by God. Highly valued by God. In fact, in John chapter 17, verse 20, Christ prays for that. And I'm just going to ask you to flip back to John chapter 17 real quick. And I want you to read. This is, this is Christ's prayer right before he goes to the cross. So this is Christ's priestly prayer. This is actually the Lord's prayer. John chapter 17 and verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, 
Father in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and that I have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples when you have the same kind of love for each other as I have for you. We wonder sometimes, what's wrong with our churches in America? And there's lots of issues. But I think one of them is this thing that we really have this individualism and this separation. And we don't have the unity that they had in early church in America a lot of times. How can we have this unity in the church that God so desires, that Jesus died for, and the Spirit of God was sent here to implement? We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, it says we've all been made to drink of the same Spirit. We've all been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ as it pleased God. So how can we have this this unity well, it's, I think I'm going to share a few things with us here this morning, I think, that are simple yet profound. The first thing the church had, you find in the early church, was simple prayer. Over and over and over again, you find that they had prayed together. Notice this, and when they had prayed, verse 31, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. We need to be people of prayer. Prayer is one of the keys for uniting with Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Prayer cannot be neglected if we really desire to walk with God. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 where it's talking about spiritual warfare. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching. The energizing force of the armor of God is spending time with God in prayer. I challenge you, if you don't believe that, look at the life of Jesus. He was always getting alone somewhere with God the Father to pray. Even when great ministry was happening, he sometimes would withdraw to be with the Father and hear the Father's voice and spend time talking to the Father. Before he chose the twelve, he spent all night up in the mountain praying. Because he wanted to choose the right ones. The ones the Father wanted him to choose. Jesus said that prayer is something that we need. One of the things the elders here have started doing on Sunday mornings is we meet together at 845 to pray. And I'm really rejoicing in that. 845 on Sunday mornings, the elders come together. The ones that can't be here, we do it via Zoom and we pray together. We pray for the church. We pray for our nation. We pray for you. And prayer is one of those things we need to continue in. I, I, I thank God that we still have people that pray on Wednesday nights, that meet together here for prayer meeting and lift up God in prayer and, and, re, and relate to him that way. So it's a simple thing, yet it's a, pr- a profound thing. If you look in church history, all great revivals and works of God started by groups of people getting together and praying together. It's, it's through history. Study church history. So the first thing we need to be doing is we need to be praying together. 
Secondly, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Ephesians 5.18 says we're not to be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but we're to be continually being filled with the Spirit of God. If we're not walking in the Spirit of God, we're walking in the flesh. We as Christians can do both. We can walk in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit, or we can walk in our flesh. Romans chapter 8 says that if you're walking in the flesh, you cannot please God. You can't. The only one you're going to please is yourself. Jesus told us in John chapter 15 that we need to abide in him. Like he is the, he is the vine and we're the branches. We have to abide in him to draw our nourishment and our strength from him. He says in John chapter 15 verse 5, you can do nothing without me that's of any consequence. In a book called Radical, David Platt shares a story of a pastor who came to the United States and they took him around to a lot of the mega churches. I mean the big ones. And after he'd seen several of them, they asked him, they said, what do you think about the church in America? This was his response. It's amazing what you can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. That was his assessment of the church in America. It's amazing what you can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need to do spirit-filled, spirit-led ministry. There's a mystery into that. I can't explain it totally. But it involves yielding ourselves to God. Allowing God's Spirit to control us. To fill us. That feeling, if you get into Greek, it has the idea of a filling a cell with wind. We, we put the cell up, and the Spirit of God can come in and fill that and empower us to do ministry. And these people in the early church, you find it over and over again, they were filled with the Spirit of God. So they prayed to God, they allowed the Spirit of God to fill them, and when they did that, the third thing we see is singleness of purpose. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. We find that in Acts chapter 2 also. One heart and one soul. And it has the idea that they fought a lot alike and they loved each other. They had the same spirit for each other and for God. Now, do we always think exactly the same about everything? No, and I'm sure these people didn't either. But they were united in their purpose for Christ. And what was their purpose? Well, their purpose was a great commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. To go into all the world and make disciples of every person they possibly could. That's why it says that they spoke the word of God with boldness. So their mission, their singleness of purpose, the thing they were united in, was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of bringing people into relationship with God the Father and restoring their relationships with each other. You know, we have a vision team here that's been meeting together for probably six months. It's made up of church members, men and women. And we've been hammering out the vision for our church and how to implement it. It's been quite a, quite a process. 
And I think when you finally see the final end product, I think a lot of you are going to really be excited. But one of the things about this vision statement is that we want to have a clear vision of what our church is accomplishing, of what our values are, of what we're going to do as a church. And then all of our ministries will focus to that. And we want to bring everyone into an understanding of what we're trying to do. And the main thing we're trying to do is make disciples. Of course, almost every church would tell you that. <laughs> How do you do that? What does it look like? So I'm really excited about that. And I know Pastor will share more with you about it as it goes on. We've still got a long way to go. But it's been a great process. So we see that, that they had a singleness of purpose. They were of one heart and one soul. Also, look at this. It said, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Selflessness and living. Selflessness and living. They were unselfish people. They were thinking of others more than themselves. You know, if you think about it, many of these people who had become believers were rejected by their families. When they became a follower of Christ, and this happens around the world today sometimes, when you become a follower of Christ, there are nations like India and some of the Muslim countries and so forth, they totally reject you to the point even sometimes of threatening to kill you and sometimes killing you. The church became their family. I love it in Mark chapter 3 and verse 31 through 35, Jesus is teaching his followers. And his mother and his brothers come to look for him because they think he's really gone crazy. And, and what, someone comes in and says, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are out here and they want you to come out. And Jesus looks around at the people that are listening to his teaching. And he says, these people are my mother and my brother and my sister. The people who are doing the will of God, who are following Christ. That's the way the church should be. No one claimed that anything that they owned were their own things. They were sharing generously. I love it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. It says, let him who steals, steal no more. But let, her, let him labor with his hands. The thing which is good that he may have to give to those that have need. Now you talk about a paradigm shift. We have people today that don't want to work at all and get stuff. And then we have a lot of people that want to work like crazy today so they can get a bunch of stuff for themselves. But the scripture says we're to work with our hands so that we can have not only for our own need, but we can be a blessing to others. Selflessness in living. They were selling their things when needs arose. They didn't, this is not communism. They just didn't go all sell all their stuff and then throw a bunch of money in a big pile and live out of it. But when a need came up, they would sell something they had to meet that need. So it was a process thing. It was an ongoing thing. Where when a need arose, they said, hey, I've got this. I can sell this. And I can bring this money and give it to the apostles. And they can get that need to the person that needs, needs it. They had all things in common. So there's praying together. There's allowing the Spirit of God to fill us. There's selflessness in living and notice what happens when we do these things. Supernatural ministry occurs. 
And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands and houses were selling them and bringing them the proceeds of the things that were sold and laying them at the apostles' feet to be distributed to each as anyone had need. When you have unity in the church that is produced by the Spirit of God, and people are loving each other the way they're supposed to do, that's when supernatural ministry takes place. That's when the sharing of the gospel and power takes place. This is about some references. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 40. Verse 47. Chapter 4, verse 4. four verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 24. Just a few Verses that talk about the Word of God going out in great power. As they moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And finally started moving out even to the uttermost parts of the world. Supernatural spread of the gospel. And it says, interesting enough, each time that the Lord was adding to the church daily those that were being saved. They weren't out like used car salesmen. Trying to hawk a car. Incidentally, let me chase a rabbit trail for just a minute. This is not my sermon notes. This is free. won't cost you anything. About two weeks ago, my daughter was driving our car and someone rear-ended her and, and totaled my car. So I've been trying to buy a car. Any of you ever try to buy a car? It's a, it's a enjoyable, it's an enjoyable experience. The last time I bought a car, I went online and I found one in Memphis, the one that's wrecked. And I got it for $8,000 under the blue book. I, I, I don't know how, except for God's grace. And I've had that car for 11 years, never had a moment's trouble out of it until it got rear-ended and destroyed. So now I've been back in the car market. And it's amazing what, what you see. Uh, I, I've been doing most of it on the Internet, trying to find the best deal. And so I sent one out. I've been sending it out saying, you know, send me back your out-the-door price. And so I found one I really liked in Georgia, and I, they had a good price on there, and I said, send me the out-the-door price. And they sent me back this thing with $499 for dent protection added to it, $499 for something else protection, $500 and something dollars for floor mats, $700 for a documentation fee, I still, I had to respond. I wasn't totally Christian in the way I responded on email. But I had to ask him about the $500 floor mats. I said, I'm 60 years old. I've not spent $500 on floor mats my whole life. What kind of floor mats are these? He did respond back and say he had to put all that on there. $600 for window tinting. I think they had like $3,000 back to the car for that thing. It, it was an experience. Sorry, that was just a rabbit trail. So they had, they had supernatural ministry. Secondly, they had a superabundance of God's grace. Notice this, and it says, great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon the whole fellowship there. They had favor of God. They had the favor of God with people outside the church. We find that in chapter 5, verse 14. If you want to look at a passage, uh, just flip over a page. And it says, And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Uh, uh, verse 13, I'm sorry. And yet none of the rest joined them, but they were highly, the people highly esteemed them. 
This was after, uh, that's verse 13. This was after Ananias and Sapphira got struck down. And it says the people outside highly esteemed them. In Acts chapter 2, you find that also in verse 47. They had great favor of the people. Even though no one wanted to go and join to them right after Ananias and Sapphira were struck down, they still esteemed the people very highly. They had favor of God with the people outside. They also had favor among themselves. One writer said this refers to the loveliness of the harmonious relationships that they had together. It reminded me of Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands blessing and life forevermore. You know, when, when you're dwelling together in the unity of God, there is great grace upon a church and a ministry. I've seen that. I've seen churches where the grace of God begins to descend in the life of that body. And I really think we're experiencing that here at Calvary. We're seeing the grace of God move among the midst of us. What else is a result of this? There is supernatural ministry of sharing the gospel, of God's grace in people's lives. And then look at this, submission to leaders. This is an interesting result of that. And it said, when they were selling these things, they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This laying at the feet is really a sign of submission to leadership. They trusted their leaders. That's a hard one sometimes, especially in America. We like that. We're, we're, in America, we like to be kayakers instead of rafters. If you've ever done whitewater rafting or kayaking, you know, it's, it's a different, the kayaking is a totally different experience than the rafting. I've done both, and I really like the rafting a lot more. I have a fear of drowning, a healthy fear of drowning. And it's a whole lot easier to drown in a kayak than it is on a raft. These people were submissive to their leaders. They trusted their leaders. And the Bible tells us to do that. Going to the book of Hebrews, verse 7, it says, Remember those... And I don't like the, the King James on this. It says, who rule over you. The better word there is lead over you. Who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then also, in verse 17, it says this. Obey those who lead over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. And then verse 24, greet all those who lead over you and all the saints. Part of being a shepherd of God is leading people and guiding people. You teach, you pray, but you lead. And you lead primarily by example. You lead by example. And that brings us back to chapter 4, to a man who I love in the scriptures. A man named Joseph or Barnabas. This is the first mention of Barnabas. And he's going to give us two examples of good leadership here. 
of the leadership you can trust. And this first guy is named Barnabas. He was a Levite, which means he was of the priestly line. He was a leader. And, and the name Barnabas means son of encouragement or son of consolation. Barnabas was the kind of person who led by example and the kind of person who looked for people that he could pour into, that he could encourage, that he could build up in the body of Christ. I love this example. And it says, he owned some land. He's probably in the country of Cyprus. And having sold it, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is one of my heroes because later on in the book of Acts, he finds this guy named Paul. And Paul had just become a Christian. And all the rest of the Christians were kind of a leery of Paul because he'd been killing them. And it says Barnabas found him and brought him to the disciples and introduced him. And then Paul goes away for a period of time because he's got to go down and receive the revelation of the church that God has for him. And then in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is out still doing ministry. And it says Barnabas goes down to Tarsus to look for Paul. And he brings Paul back. And Paul gets established in the church there at Damascus. And then something awesome happens. They get commissioned to go out and start. First, they get sent to take some money to the church up at Jerusalem to meet the needs of the saints. And then they start these missionary journeys. And Paul goes from being a killer of Christians to the, probably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, if not the greatest. Tremendous ministry. Because why? Because the son of consolation saw him and wasn't afraid and went and got him and brought him out. What a leader. What a leader. There's another example in chapter 5 of people who are not conducive to uh, unity in the body of Christ. And God deals with them very sternly. All I can say is praise God that God doesn't do that today the way he did to make an example of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So it gives us two examples. One who has a pure heart and wants to do things the right way and another person that's got a deceptive heart. So what does that tell us today? Well, the last time I preached on unity, which was a couple of years ago here, I preached a message called The Fellowship, The Mystery of the Fellowship. And it's about unity. And I had a lady talk me out, stop me out in the hallway and she said, what's wrong? What's going on here? Well, let me just assure you, there's nothing going on here. There's not a big schism in the church. There's not a big division in the church. But you know what? If unity is what God desires and power comes when the church of God is united together, what do you think Satan wants to do? What do you think that rasky pesco is out there trying to do to us? Create division. He's trying to worm his way into all the churches and create division to divide people. When he can get division started, it destroys ministry. So here's our application today. First of all, realize that unity is based on our reconciliation to the Father. Our unity in the body of Christ is based on our relationship with the Father. When we take communion, we say we're having communion with the Father. But we're also saying we have a communion with each other and love for each other. 
You know, a lot of times, and doctrine is extremely important. I'm a big doctrinal guy. Uh, we can have our doctrine right and think we're right with the Lord, but if we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not right with God. I don't care how straight your doctrine is. Our relationship with the Father is how our reconciliation with each other takes place also. Number two, recognize how much value God places on unity in the body. What are some examples of this? Well, first of all, Christ prayed for our unity in John chapter 17. Last thing he prayed for before he goes to the cross. Father, let them be one like you and I are one. That is a tall order. That we would be one with each other the way Christ and the Father are one with each other. Jesus desires that unity. Number two, God has gifted us and placed it in the body to build up the body of Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. It says that he has brought us together in the body of Christ and he's given us different spiritual gifts to minister to each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says he's placed us in the body as it's pleased him. And we can't say that we don't have need of each other. God has fitted each body together where you take your spiritual gifts and you come together to serve one another and love one another in that unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, bear that out. That God wants us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the first thing he taught. Isn't it interesting after he gives us three deep chapters of doctrine in Ephesians chapter 3. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Bam! Some of the deepest doctrine you will ever find. At the end of that chapter, he says, I pray that you would understand what I just told you. Then chapters 2 and 3, he talks about the unity of the body of Christ. He talks about how between Jew and Gentile, he broke down that hatred and that middle wall of partition and has brought us together in a new living relationship. And at the end of chapter 3, he prays for the people at Ephesus and all Christians that they would understand that and what it means to let Christ dwell in our heart and live in our heart, that we'd be rooted and grounded and built up in his love. He gets to chapter 4, and the first thing he challenges them on. Now, he says, I want you to walk worthy. I want you to live up to who you are in Christ, to what Christ has done for you. And the first thing he calls for is unity in the body of Christ. That's how important it is to God. Here's something else. And we could flip over. I want to flip over, and I'm almost done this morning. But I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to challenge you with something. And you may have seen this before. You may not have seen this before. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to start. This is about the Lord's Supper. He says this in verse 17, chapter 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worst. For the church, of all, for first of all, when you come together to church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I, in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. 
Often, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves. And in the past, I've always thought about, well, okay, is there sin? Did I do something? Am I, you know, have I sinned against God? The sin in this passage was the way they were treating each other in the church. They were coming together to eat a meal before they had church service, and they were treating each other very disrespectfully. And Paul goes on to write, you know what? You've treated each other like this, and some of you are sick, and some of you are dead. Maybe God still does judge like he did Ananias and Sapphira. That's how much God values unity. Is he deals with it strictly. He says, you cannot say I have fellowship with God and treat each other in a bad way. Number three, strive to keep unity and protect unity in the body of Christ. Our great enemy loves to cause division between believers. He's out there walking around. And I'll tell you what, God has been doing some amazing things here at, at Calvary. I'm just going to brag on Calvary just a little bit and, the, and you people. Because it's you, Calvary is is every one of you sitting out here. Our giving has been up during this COVID thing. That's incredible. Some churches have really struggled in that. We've been adding new members. I think for the last nine weeks in a row, we've had new members coming into the body of Christ, joining the church here in the midst of a, a COVID pandemic. God's grace has been upon it. So many new things and great things have started up. You know, you just the, the changes in the facilities. God's grace has been upon us. And I'm going to tell you something. Satan doesn't like that. So Satan is out there trying to create division. He's trying to create division in all the churches, but he's out there working against us. So we need to strive to keep unity. A lot of times this unity occurs over petty differences. Sometimes it's big theological differences. Usually it's not. It's usually secondary theological differences. Yeah, our church is, is a premillennial church. We believe in the premillennial return of Christ. We're a dispensational church. If you don't know what all that is, you can talk to me in the hall afterwards. I'm as dispensational as you can get. I mean, I, I'm a dispensationalist. If you, I'll tell you what that means if you really want to know. But I can have fellowship with covenant theologians. When I went to seminary, most of my professors were not were not premillennial. Some of them were all millennial, some were postmillennial. Of course, they always tell tell me. I said, "I hope you're right. I think you're wrong, Dustin, but I really hope you're right." And I may be wrong about that. I don't think I am. I'm about ninety percent sure. But I can still have fellowship with someone who doesn't hold the exact same view as I do about the second coming of Christ. Now, I can't have fellowship with someone who denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Because that, that person is not a true believer. So there's secondary issues. That's usually some of the things that Satan worms his way in and gets people to major on a secondary issue. But a lot of times it's interpersonal relationships. Something I always tell people is, I need you to forgive me. Usually when I'm teaching a new class, I'll just start out and say, I want you to forgive me. And they'll all look at me like I'm crazy. And I'll tell them this. Why are you apologizing? Because if I'm here long enough and I'm teaching long enough, I'm going to say something that offends you. It's just going to happen. In a multitude of words, there's sin. And eventually I'm going to say something stupid or I'm going to say something that is insensitive. I didn't mean to do it. So I, I, there's two things I want you, ways I want you to handle that. First of all, I just want you to 
if it's if it's you realize I didn't mean anything by it, and you can just let it go, just let it go. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. But if you can't let it go, if it's really bothering you, you've got to come and tell me. And I promise you, I will apologize and ask for your forgiveness. I've gone and apologized to people because somebody told me, I think you offended them. So I went and sought them out and said, did I, def- I want to ask, did I offend you this morning? Because that's how much I value my relationship with other people. So I just go ahead and apologize usually once a year up front. That way I can get over it. So if I've offended you this morning, if I've offended you, or if I've offended you because I didn't say hi to you this morning because I was thinking about what I was going to preach on or anything, please forgive me. But if it's really, really bothering you, come and tell me. And I promise you I will ask for forgiveness. And I'll tell you I'm sorry, and I'll try to do better next time. So a lot of times it's like being a family. We have to learn to forgive each other. We have to learn to communicate with each other. We have to learn to value each other. And when we disagree on something, we have to do it respectfully. I'll tell you something. Our elder board, I'm going to brag on them one more time and then I'm done. I've served on a lot of boards, and these men very much, we defer to each other. There's a great spirit of, of deference there and, and humility before each other in that board. And, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure the deacon board is the same way. I, I don't get to be on the deacon board and see what's going on in there. But I really, I really appreciate the leaders here. Now, does that mean that there's any that our elders have a holy aura around them and we don't make mistakes? No, it doesn't mean that. When we get to heaven, we won't make any more mistakes. But between them, we may make mistakes. And you have the right to come up and talk to us about that and say, why did you do this? I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to come and sit in an elders meeting if you want to. You can do that. You know, we're, 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 and see what goes on. And see what we're trying to do. So we want you to know that, that the leaders in this church, we're trying to lead for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're trying to lead this body in a way that, that brings glory to God. All the leaders. All the leaders in the ministry, I feel that way. So pray for us. It's not an easy job sometimes. And we will make mistakes. And sometimes we might offend someone. If we, if we do, you've got to let us know. And I promise you, there's not a man on that board that won't say, I'm sorry. I should have done that. I should have said that. I didn't know what I was doing when I did that. I promise you that. So I want to encourage us this morning to look at the body of Christ in unity and, and love each other the way Christ loves us. That we would have that same love for each other. And let God continue to work here like he's already working. He's working in a powerful way. It's a slow working of God in the hearts and lives of, of, of me and I think everyone here. And it's powerful. It's deep. And God is bringing the people He's bringing the people that he wants here. He's, he's bringing new people in here to minister. So be in prayer. Pray for our country. Pray for each other. Pray for this body that God will continue to bless it. And that there's any disunity, God would just snuff it out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time this morning in your word. Uh, I really felt strongly about this message. Not because there's some big division here at Calvary but because there's always a potential for that, of hurt feelings. We, we all have that propensity to hurt each other's feelings, to be insensitive, to maybe be misunderstood. And Satan loves, so loves to run with that. Help us to not be that way. Help us to treat each other like family, to be able to sit down and talk about our differences, to sit down and talk about our needs and what's going on in our lives. That we might bring glory and honor to you. That this ministry might continue to reach people for Christ. And disciple people for your kingdom.
God, that's our heart's desire. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.